Hi loves. Welcome back to Raw Vegan Lens. I'm your host Sherry Michelle. Let's go. This is where we just keep trying. <laughs> and we're talking about the great cure still. I wanted to do something completely different on this podcast for a few days. And that is to read from Johanna or Johanna Brant's The Great Cure, uh, the official Eret Society edition. I think she would have loved this because she really wanted this to be free for everyone. And it's a short read. The body of it is 58 pages and then there's some extra um, breakdowns in the back. So let's just get started because here we don't need no stinking commercials. And I'm not going to talk about anything else coming up. <laughs> All right, The Grape Cured, Johanna Brandt. Publisher's Note. This book was first published in the United States under the auspices of Harmony Center Incorporated as a contribution by the author to a suffering humanity and in the hopes of bringing relief to millions of sufferers throughout the world. It is not to be used to promote the sale of products that might be mentioned herein. Should doubt exist as to the seriousness of the illness, the services of a qualified physician should be called upon without delay. Author's note. In the present desperate need of the world, I am offering this book as my contribution toward the solution of the cancer problem. It is founded on personal experience and is put forward more as a prevention of cancer than a cure. Many of the sufferers from this malady have had organs removed. Havoc has been wrought by the virulent cancer poison. They all have the same story to tell, such as, we are now declared to be suffering from an inoperable cancer. To all such afflicted beings, and there are many, I would say that the grape diet is, so far as I know at the present, their only hope. Any questions with regard to such cases should be directed to licensed drugless healers or to the medical men who have studied the grape cure. Before starting on the grape diet, it is absolutely essential to remove any and all prejudice from our minds and hearts. Start with a clean sheet. Then the only thing you will have to eradicate is the obstruction in your physical body. Johanna Brandt. Pretoria, South Africa. Chapter 1, the 4th of July, 1927. It was midwinter when I left my home in the Transvaal to bring the message of the discovery of a remedy for cancer to the United States of America. Nothing could have been more dreary than the dusty little platform of our provincial town. Something clutched my heart when I looked on the faces of the children who had helped to get my mother ready for her strange expedition. To get mother ready for her strange expedition. So these are her children she's talking about. When would I see them again? Matters were not improved by the fact that my husband's face was missing. He was away from home on affairs connected with our church. It was the 4th of July, the American Day of Independence. This was a mere coincidence. The date had not been prearranged because of its significance, but because it fitted in with the lectures I had to deliver in Bloemfontein and Cape Town before sailing for England by the Windsor Castle. It was a good omen, I told the children. <laughs> it was a good omen, I told the children. America was a free country politically and an independent, powerful, progressive, rich, and enlightened nation. But it was not free from disease. It had no doubt whatsoever, I had no doubt whatsoever, that this free nation would accept my message and, accepting it, be blessed with a new emancipation, a wonderful deliverance from disease and premature death. I tried to conjure up visions 
of the blessed and beautiful state of the world when, through America, a perishing humanity had been saved from suffering and the poverty which so often follows in the wake of disease. In Cape Town, after one of my lectures, an astrologer who happened to be present volunteered the information that planetary influences were against my enterprise. I was earnestly advised to cancel my voyage and to return to Transvaal, to the Transvaal. This was discouraging. To hide my deep depression, I smiled and said, I shall overcome all planetary and other evil influences by the grace of God. The brooding majesty the table mount, of Table Mountain enveloped me in a parting benediction. Disappointment followed in my wake. Every plan was frustrated. My funds ran low, and I was so much delayed in England and Europe that it was the end of November before I arrived in New York. Perhaps someday the story may be written of how, in the end, by the grace of God, every obstacle was overcome. The first three months in America were difficult indeed. I found to my great disappointment that the Medical Practice Act of the state of New York was tyrannical in the extreme. Much time was lost in constructing a plan by which I could demonstrate the efficacy of the grape cure. As a law-abiding citizen of South Africa, I had no desire to come into conflict with the law of a strange land. There was nothing to do, therefore, but to secure the cooperation of registered medical men and, carrying, and carry out my healing campaign under their protection. But would it be possible to find medical men who would be willing to supervise test cases under an unknown system of healing? The time spent in searching for them was not lost. I visited many people and institutions, presented my letters of introduction, delivered private lectures, and worked up many valuable connections. My main activity, however, was writing. The little portable Corona typewriter that, was, uh, that has accompanied me everywhere since 1916 was nearly worn out with the letters I wrote to the editors of leading newspapers and magazines. The heads of healing movements the pastors of churches, and last but not least, the most prominent medical men connected with the campaign against cancer. But these efforts met with no success. The months went by, and I did not even get an acknowledgement of the receipt of any of my communications. Two years before, when I was lecturing in Cape Town, I met a fine American woman who was interested in healing and who still had time on her trip around the world to help me with my work. We became close friends. Her home in Long Island received me after I landed in New York. It is God who builds the nest of the blind bird. I still have the latch key of that home. The refuge is always ready. Those who have drunk deeply of the cup of homesickness will understand. But this was no ordinary homesickness. It was not merely a longing for home and loved ones or yearning for the slumbering sunlit vastness of South Africa. It was a state of mental and spiritual anguish charged with unfathomable suffering of all the ages. It was my utter helplessness. To hold the key to the solution of most of the problems of life and to have it rejected, untried, as worthless, that is to pass through the dark night of the soul. To have the mockery of worldly splendors thrust upon one as a substitute for an ideal, that is the temptation of the wilderness, in the wilderness. To offer the gift of deliverance from pain freely, without money and without price, to see it spurned, that is crucifixion, Calvary. The Turning of the Tide. Among others, I had a letter of introduction to the father of naturopathy in America, Dr. Benedict Lust. And when I placed my difficulties before him, he advised me to approach Mr. Bernard McFadden, editor of the Evening Graphic and the famous magazine Physical Culture. Mr. McFadden received me very kindly, in spite of the fact that I was still withholding the secret of the grape cure until it could be brought forward in such a way that it could never be disputed.
He listened attentively to my story and finally invited me to write an account of the discovery for the evening graphic. What seemed to impress him most was the fact that I was prepared to undergo an exploratory operation to prove my claim, for I have always maintained that the scars of the malignant growth were still present in my body. This proof of my sincerity touched him, and he made a special feature of my case in a full-page article in the evening graphic of January 21st, 1928. Chapter 2, My Story of the Discovery In the magazine section of the New York Evening Graphic on January 21st, 1928, my article was published as follows by Johanna Brandt. I was born in the heart of South Africa in 1876. Over 50 years ago, my forefathers were heavy meat eaters and practically lived on game, as did most South Africans in those days. I do not know whether this has anything to do with the fact that cancer is the greatest scourge of our country, but I think so. There was a lot of cancer in my father's family, and my mother died of cancer in 1916. The doctors tell us that the disease is not hereditary. This may be true, but the predisposing causes of cancer in my mother's body may have been present in my own. It is not unreasonable to assume this. Be that as it may, as long as I can remember I suffered from gastric trouble, bilious attacks, and stomach ulcers. It is cruel when one is of a highly romantic temperament to have to turn one's internal organs inside out for public inspection. Why could it not have been something less prosaic, heart disease, lung trouble, or a delicate throat, but stomach, a reeking, fermenting stomach, and a blatantly conspicuous one at that? After the anguishing spectacle of my mother's martyrdom, I had one shock after another, national, family, and other troubles. Life became a ghastly nightmare, and through it all, I was conscious of a gnawing pain at the left side of my stomach. Cancer? I was not afraid of it. In my ignorance, I thought I had reached the limit of human endurance. I saw in cancer a possible release. A friend, meeting my husband one day, inquired after my health, and was so much struck by this reply that she repeated it to me. What must I say about my wife? The hope of death is keeping her alive, and the fear of life is nearly killing her. The hope of death, that was it, but I was puzzled to know how my secret had been discovered. My plan of action was carefully prearranged. I would allow nothing to be done that could prolong life. If it were really cancer, no medicines would be taken to check the disease, no injections, no drugs to alleviate pain, and under no circumstances, the application of the surgeon's knife. At this time, a little book was put in my hands, The Fasting Cure by Upton Sinclair. It thrilled me. A new hope surged through me, the hope of relief from suffering. Here was something that appealed to my common sense, something constructive, nature, cure. The book set the fasting ball rolling in our house. I fasted for seven days. The result was disappointing. Starting fasting class. Nothing daunted, I fasted again and persuaded everyone else to fast. In time, I set up a fasting business free of charge. Anyone and everyone could fast for nothing under my supervision. I became highly experienced and seemed to cure everyone but myself. The study of one system of healing led to another. Our home was stacked with the best American books and magazines on the science of spinal adjustment, German water cures, Swiss sunbathing, Russian fruit cures, and oriental works on the science of deep breathing. A flame had been lighted that nothing could extinguish. It was a pleasure to see our large family of sons and daughters growing tall, strong, and athletic. I once overheard the following fragment of a good-humored argument between two small sons. You talk more nonsense in a day than Charlie Chaplin does in a week. Eat more fruit, man. You will feel much better. 
fruit. What you want is a jolly good fast. We fletcherized raw carrots and peanuts until our jaws ached. We began the day with spinal exercises and finished it by sleeping outside. The whole family joined hands with me in the campaign against disease. Our fortune was spent in building up a system of natural healing so perfect in its simplicity and economy that it would meet the needs of the farming population in the remotest regions of South Africa. I wrote books and answered thousands of letters, but under it all, I knew that my own internal trouble was not responding to the nature cure. Nine years battle for life. My battle for life lasted nine years. I fasted myself to a skeleton. I fasted beyond the starvation point, which is most unusual proceeding, consuming my own live tissues in the effort to destroy the growth. With every fast, the growth was unmistakably checked, but it was not destroyed. On the contrary, it seemed to take a new hold on me whenever I broke the fast because I took the wrong foods. How cancer thrives. I knew exactly what was taking place. I knew that it was wrong to undermine the system by injurious fasting and then to nourish the growth by wrong feeding. What was I to do? There was no one to advise me, but while experimenting on myself, I was learning something new every day. Among other things, I learned that cancer thrives on every form of animal food. The more impure, the better. I suffered from horrible and disgusting cravings for blood for beef and pork and rich blood sausages, for stimulating and highly seasoned foods. The growth was now pushing its way through the diaphragm, toward the heart and left lung. I seemed to see it like a red octopus feeding on the impure blood at the base of the lung. Breathing became difficult. I spat blood occasionally. One night in August 1920, I had a terrible attack of vomiting and purging with excruciating pain. Toward morning, I brought up a quantity of half-digested blood. In serious condition. Matters were becoming serious. The thought of the death certificate and possible complications troubled me. I sent for our family physician. He ordered me to lie still in bed for three months. Under his supervision, I fasted 12 days. Plenty of time now to write glowing accounts of the wonders of nature cure to distant correspondents. More than ever, I realized the importance of saving my own life in order to convince and try to save others. It was under this fast that I first noticed an ominous sign, the presence of digested blood, known in medical circles as coffee grounds, in the stools after the use of the enema. Still more concerning to find that I no longer put on weight on breaking the fast. Toward the end of 1920, I seemed to be fasting chronically, four, seven, ten days, and finally three weeks in December. Nothing has been said in this article about the mental aspect of healing. The subject is too big. It forms the most thrilling story of my life, but I must now be content to state that I became super conscious. I had unerring hunches and cultivated a bowing acquaintance with my subliminal self, whatever that may be. All this fasting brought about a slight improvement and I dragged through 1921 somehow. Then in November, I was persuaded by my doctor to go into the general hospital in Johannesburg for an x-ray examination. Many plates were taken and a noted surgeon pronounced his verdict. The stomach was being divided in two by a vicious, fibrous growth. An immediate operation was recommended as the only means of prolonging my life. This I refused. 
The famous doctor who was operating in the x-ray department was much interested in my experiences and invited me to his house for another x-ray examination if I found myself still in the land of the living after six months. Encouraged by this remark, uh, by this mark of sympathy, I fasted for three weeks in December, drinking pure water only and lying in the morning sun. When after six months I went under the x-ray again, no tract of the growth could be found. But pain remained. I assured the doctor, however, that the pain was still there and told him that I was looking for a food that would answer a threefold purpose, viz. destroy the growth effectually, eliminate the poison, and build new tissue. The three years that followed were years of great suffering, but I kept on fasting and dieting alternately, and in 1925, after a seven-day fast, I accidentally discovered a food that had the miraculous effect of healing me completely within six weeks. The publication of this discovery will be more of more value after the particulars set forth in this article have been proved to be facts. I therefore call upon the Medical Council to have an exploratory operation performed. The gravity of the disease can only be estimated by an examination of the extent of the damage done, and then only can the efficacy of the cure be established. A method that may cure cancer may cure almost any other disease. What is more, it may prevent cancer in almost every other disease keyword being prevent. It may prevent cancer and almost every other disease. While I was experimenting on myself, I was discouraged. I was often discouraged by the thought that very few people would be able to undergo such a rigorous treatment. But it is the sum total of my experience that I hope to bring before the public. Fasting for such a long period was unnecessary. The mistake I made need not be made by other patients. Our system of healing has been greatly modified by the discovery of the food cure. And while the patient is undergoing the cure for his or her own particular complaint, nature is secretly restoring and rejuvenating every part of the body. The senses become abnormally acute. Dim eyes brighten. Faded hair takes on a new gloss. The lifeless, hopeless voice becomes vibrant, magnetic, and the complexion clears. I've seen beautiful sets of teeth, loose in their separating sockets, become steady and fixed within a few weeks, the gums free of pyrrhea within a few months. I've watched our old people getting young and our young people becoming superbly beautiful. And with every new entrancing revelation of the wonders of the nature cure, I have dedicated my life anew to this joyous work of spreading the good news. The forgoing article created widespread interest. In afflicted nations stirred to the cord of hope that had been b struck. I was overwhelmed with correspondence and visits. This led to unexpected developments. That Saturday morning was a landmark. I had an informal luncheon party in my hotel to celebrate the publication of an article, which I believed would revolutionize healing throughout the world. It was amusing to listen to the outcry of my friends against the proposed operation. They begged me not to consider it, but it was too late to withdraw. It had gone out in the form of a challenge to the medical fraternity, and if they accepted it, I would be bound in honor to submit to it. On the 21st day of January, a stranger called at my hotel, a medical man and a surgeon. The evening graphic was only a few hours old and it already had attracted the attention of a doctor whom I thought had accepted my challenge. This kindly enthusiastic doctor had no designs upon me. The purpose of his visit was to encourage me and urge me to be steadfast, not to be dissuaded from my plan. Nothing could be finer than such evidence of devotion to a cause, he said. Afterwards, I found out that he was a member of the medical profession of exceptionally high standing. 
And when letters came pouring in from every part of the United States and Canada, in response to my article, I consulted him. From other medical men, there was no response to my challenge. Chapter three, motto of HM, is for God and common sense. On this, our little planet, the sons and daughters of God groan and travail in unspeakable anguish to bring forth the harmony of the spheres. Harmony means perfection. There's no way of attaining there is no way of attaining perfection of body, mind, and spirit except by applying the eternal principle of harmony to the daily life. In the hope that the teachings that had saved my own life would be helpful to others, I spent my time in New York in trying to establish a center. The ways of providence are past finding out. It was a sore trial to be kept waiting for the sympathetic response of the medical fraternity. One month I waited, and then, as no surgeon volunteered to investigate my claims, I formally withdrew my challenge. Another and better way had, in the meantime, been found of demonstrating the efficacy of my discovery. If others afflicted with cancer could be cured, then my theory would be proven. The many heartbreaking appeals for relief would not be ignored, could not be ignored. As the laws of the land did not forbid me to tell the story of how I had cured myself, I simply related my experiences and described the procedure I had adopted. People treated by my methods recovered. They, in their turn, told their relatives and friends, always with the same results. Correspondents clamored for information about the grape cure. At first, we sent out typed copies, but when the demand became excessive, we had a four-page leaflet printed. Five editions of this were printed, newspapers in distant states were reproduced, states reproduced it, and inquiries came pouring in thick and fast. This leaflet, which was distributed free of charge, became famous. When it became necessary to have a secretary, a woman with great executive ability stepped forward and offered her services. Her rooms were placed at my disposal for the reception of the visitors. Our surprise may be imagined when we found the physician who had called at my hotel had his office in the same building. The cancer patients who came to us were referred to him. Other medical men volunteered to experiment on their cancer patients. No charge was made for the treatment of these test cases. Chapter four, the first test cases. Our test cases will go down in history. Those of the patients who knew that they were suffering from cancer were greatly helped by the thought that there was more at stake than their lives. They showed the proper fighting spirit when they understood that the success of a noble cause depended on their efforts, and especially on their implicit obedience. The details of all our test cases have been carefully tabulated for publication. In this volume, however, I am merely able to give an outline of our experiences. When the time comes, our physicians will speak for themselves. Everyone concerned with these test cases in New York passed through a baptism of fire, for as it happened, the patients were pronounced to be in the final stages of cancer. I maintain that it is not fair to expect such cases to recover under the great cure or any other treatment, and yet they have all passed safely through the test. One woman had had six operations on the rectum and the base of the spine. I never saw anyone so completely poisoned. After beginning the grape diet, and she continued it longer than any of the other patients, the pus poured from her. When she began to pass worms, I knew that the terrible ordeal was nearly over. The grapes seemed to ferret out the most deep-seated cause of trouble and drive it from the system. This woman's life was, will be a perpetual martyrdom. The coccyx had been removed. A physician said she would never be able to sit properly and nothing could relieve the excruciating pain in the spine. 
but to look upon that transfigured face fills one with awe. Her eyes shine with an unearthly beauty. Her skin is soft and smooth like the petals of a rose. Sanctified by suffering, this woman has emerged from the abyss of premature death to be a witness to the divine healing properties of the grape. There was a patient in the Bronx, a middle-aged woman, the mother of a large family. When I first visited her, she said she was in the final stages of cancer of the stomach and bowels, vomiting night and day. When this stage has been reached, it is not considered wise to begin drastic treatment. But that death chamber was charged with so much filial love and passionate anxiety that I had not had the heart to refuse my help. Just a few grapes were given at a time. Within 24 hours, the vomiting stopped. The desperate strain was relieved, but the emaciating vic emaciated victim went steadily down, passing through all the phases of debility and weakness until she actually reached the unconscious stage. The grim struggle for life lasted nearly two months. One healing crisis succeeded another. Finally, her legs began to swell. This is the end, one of her sons whispered. Yes, I replied, this is the end of the cure. The poisons had now been collected in a safe place. The family members were instructed to wrap the swollen limbs in grape compresses in order to open the pores. In a day or two, tomorrow, the swellings would probably subside. Tomorrow found a distinct improvement in the condition and soon no trace was left of these dropsical symptoms. Wonderful to relate, the hard mass in the ascending colon had been disappearing gradually. Nothing was left of that. And the stomach was now so normal and strong that the patient's incessant demand for food was for food. At this point, I must make special mention of the fact that during the most critical period, when the patient was no longer able to take grapes, the pure juice of grapes was administered with a spoon every 10 or 15 minutes. This natural stimulant seemed to tide her over the supreme crisis. I am quite sure that she could not have been saved in any other way. As she grew stronger, she drank grape juice by the pint, and gradually other fruits were added to the menu. She is now able to indulge in a delicious variety of raw salads, a dish of sliced tomatoes with olive oil, a ripe banana mashed with sour cream, and her favorite beverage, buttermilk. Life is full of problems, and the great problem in that home at present is the catering department. With the next meal ever looming big in the mind of the patient, ingenuity is taxed to the uttermost to devise something new in the raw food line. Some of the other cases have passed through experiences no less remarkable. In research work, the most satisfactory experiment may be made with external cancer. While the system is being drained of its poisons under the grape diet, the wounds are kept open with frequent applications of grape poultices, compresses, or fermentations. The discharge from these wounds is in the early stages of the treatment the discharge from these wounds in the early stages of the treatment is horrible in the extreme. As nature works very thoroughly, the discharge may continue for weeks. The grape apparently eats its way deeper and deeper into the diseased flesh, and the wounds do not heal until all the poisons have been eliminated. Then the healing seems to proceed from within. No scabs or crusts are formed so long as the wounds are kept moist. But from the glistering bone outwards, the process of reconstruction is carried on. Healthy, rosy granulations of new flesh appear, and gradually the cavities are filled up. With such miraculous evidences that a, cure, that a certain cure for cancer may have been found, one is thrilled with a new enthusiasm. 
how do you know? I've often been distressed by the questions, how do you know that you had a cancer? This was proven by x-ray examination taken at the General Hospital in Johannesburg. Some of our test cases may likewise be disputed, but what about external cancers? I'm thinking of a woman with cancer of the breast, one breast amputated, the other heavy with separation, ready to be removed. More appalling still, pus forming again in the scarred remains of the tissues on which the operation had been performed. These ominous signs striking a chill to the heart. Then the transformation. A few weeks later, the grape cure, during the grape cure, there was a distinct softening of the swollen breast. No longer overspread by that ugly looking dark red hue, it showed a tiny, a, a tinge of healthy pink here and there. The wounds on the other side were um, undergoing an even more remarkable change. There was less pus and it was less virulent, less offensive. The patient was exhausted, but brave and sweet. She still came to a consulting room to be medically examined. Those great poultices have a miraculous effect, her devoted husband exclaimed. How are such, such results brought about? The very simplicity of the diet is a handicap when one reads the directions. Chapter five, directions for the grape cure. Preparation. To prepare the system for the change of diet, the better practice is to fast for two or three days, drinking plenty of pure cold water and taking an enema of a quart of lukewarm water daily with the strained juice of one lemon therein. But this short fast, complications may be, by this short fast, complications may be avoided. The stomach is cleared of poisons and fermenting accumulations to a certain extent, and the grape can begin its work more quickly. The preliminary fast, furthermore, has the advantage of giving the patient a keen relish for the first grape. After the fast, number two, after the fast, the patient drinks one or two glasses of pure cold water the first thing in the morning. Number three, first meal. Oh, so preparation was number one. Number three, first meal. Half an hour later, the patient has his first meal of grapes. Wash them well, chew the skins and seeds thoroughly, and swallow only a few of them as food and refuge. Number four, time. Starting at 8 a.m. and having a great meal every two hours until 8 p.m. This will give seven meals daily. This is kept up for a week or two, even a month or two in a chronic cases of long standing, not longer under any circumstances. Number five, variety. Any good variety may be used, purple, green, red, white, or blue. Hothouse grapes are better than none, and the seedless varieties are excellent. The monotony of the diet may be varied by using many varieties. Different varieties contain different elements, so it is advisable to use as many kinds as one can get. Some like them acid, others like them sweet. The best time is when the grape is uh, grape season is at its height. Number six, quantity. This varies according to the condition, digestion, and occupation of the patient. It is well to begin with a small quantity of one, two, or three ounces per meal, gradually increasing this to double and double the quantity. In time, about ha a half pound may safely be taken at a meal. To make this point quite clear, a minimum quantity of one pound should be used daily, while the maximum should not exceed four pounds. Patients taking larger quantities at a meal should allow at least three hours for digestion and should not take all the skins. Invariably, the best results have been affected when grapes have been taken in small quantities. 
Number seven, enjoyment. A loathing for grapes may indicate the presence of much poison in the system and the need for another short fast. Adding grapes or any other food to such a condition would therefore be injurious. The result in such cases is to abstain from every form of food, drinking an abundance of cold water. Unless patients can eat the grapes with perfect enjoyment, they are better off without them. Skip a few meals. Let nature regulate this matter. We hear of overzealous relatives forcing grapes down the throats of unfortunate patients. This is a great mistake. Always remember that grapes are nourishing and maintain life in the body while the cleansing process is going on. Loss of strength is due to the presence of poisons in the system. The patient continues to weaken under the grape diet and under the complete fast until the poison has been expelled. Then without a change of diet and in case of a complete fast without any food whatsoever, the patient returns to strength and in some cases even puts on weight. It is a well-known fact with scientists and physiologists that a person can go from 90 to 115 days without any food and live, and that he can go from uh, go without water 12 days and live. Four stages. There are four stages in a complete treatment that these stages must be followed closely. Heavy foods must not be eaten until the completion of four stages. At the conclusion of the exclusive diet, the patient is in much the same condition as a typhoid patient when this fever subsides. Extreme care must be taken to prevent him from eating heavy foods. First stage, A. In every case, reactions are different. It is, therefore, impossible to say beforehand how long it will be necessary to use grapes only. But this may be stated differently. This may be stated definitely, the cleansing of the elementary canal takes time and until this has been accomplished, the real relief does not begin. It is safe to say that the first seven to 10 days on grapes only would be required to clear the stomach and bowels of their ancient accumulations. And it is during this period that distressing symptoms often appear. Nature works thoroughly. She does not build on a rotten foundation. The purification of every part of the body must be complete before new tissue can be built. I think this is the only explanation of the excessive loss of weight under the grape diet. This question is of so much importance that we refer to it in detail under the treatment of cancer elsewhere. If we could remove every trace of fear from the mind of the patient, the correct procedure would be to continue the exclusive grape diet until he stops losing weight. By watching the symptoms, the temperature, the excretions, eruptions, etc., we know when the work of purification is complete. When this point has been reached, and it may last from two weeks to two months, it is advisable to go on to the second stage. The second stage, B. The gradual introduction of other fresh fruits, tomatoes, and sour milk or cottage cheese. I just want to say we know now that milk and cottage cheese are also animal products so just keep that in mind um i don't want to put words into her mouth she's um done an amazing incredible service by writing this book but i personally would not advise any dairy um you know we live and learn we do not expect anyone to live on grapes forever the grape contains most of the most valuable elements necessary for life, but it does not contain everything. To live on grapes indefinitely would be to rob the system of some of the elements essential to life. 
When we are sure, therefore, that the grape has done its work by breaking up the unhealthy tissue and purifying the blood, the careful introduction of other bodybuilding foods is the next step. Grapes still form the main food and are always taken as the first meal in the morning at 8 p.m. and at 8 p.m. But now, during the day, some other fresh fruit may be used instead of grapes. An endless variety presents itself, a slice of melon, an orange, a grapefruit, an apple, a luscious pear, the scarlet strawberry, the golden apricot, one fruit more appetizing than the other. Let the patient choose. Only one kind of fruit to be taken at a meal, but something different every day. After a few days, a glass of sour milk, buttermilk, yogurt, or cottage cheese may be taken instead of grapes for supper. So again, I just want to reiterate that these are mucus-forming foods. All dairy is still an animal product and was not meant for our consumption. It was meant for baby cows to double in size, to quadruple in size, to grow to a thousand pounds in six months. It's just not our food. It's not our mother, not our milk. Patients who dislike milk should take a ripe, finely mashed banana or some other nourishing fruit. There you go. After a week or 10 days, every other meal may consist of different varieties of fruit or sour milk. Taking them, for example, in the following order. 8 a.m. grapes, 10 a.m. pear, banana, or peaches. 12 noon grapes, 2 p.m. sour milk, buttermilk, or cottage cheese. Just eliminate that, just keep with the fruit. 4 p.m. grapes, 6 p.m. orange grapefruit plums or apricots, 8 p.m. grapes. At this point, some patients crave for something savory. Personally, I'm thinking that that's the dairy that's causing them to crave anything other than fruit, but let's just move forward and I will stop interjecting my personal opinions. At this point, some patients crave for something savory. The sweet fruits begin to pall. There may even be a positive aversion to grapes, in which case they should be omitted altogether and the other foods taken every three hours. One or two sliced tomatoes with pure olive oil and a little lemon juice may safely be included in this diet. The tomato is more of a fruit than a vegetable containing many valuable properties, and it forms an indispensable part of the diet in the second stage of the treatment. Third stage, C, the raw diet. This includes every food that can be eaten uncooked, raw vegetables, salads, fruits, nuts, raisins, dates, figs, and other dried fruits. And she goes on to say butter, cottage cheese, sour milk, yogurt, and buttermilk, honey, and olive oil. I, I would leave off all of those. I would leave off the butter, cottage cheese, sour milk, yogurt, buttermilk, even the honey and the olive oil. These are not helpful. We know this now. So I would hope that, um, Johanna, I know you're listening <laughs> and that you approve and my apologies. Begin the day as usual with cold water and grapes or some other fruit for breakfast, but instead of sour milk or fruit for lunch, have a substantial salad of raw vegetables. Reduce the number of meals as raw vegetables require longer to digest. It is surprising to some people to find that nearly all the vegetables can be used raw. Young green peas and string beans, celery, tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, sprigs of cauliflowers, squash, shredded cabbage leaves, grated turnips, gray carrots, beets, and parsnips, finely chopped onion and spinach. 
After the light fruit diet, it is wise not to start out too soon with a large variety of vegetables. Choose two or three of the above named as a foundation for your salad and mix them with lemon juice and olive oil. Try different varieties in the following day and watch the combinations of flavors. Salad making is a supreme art. I agree. Above all things, this noonday meal should be made palatable. Patients who have been used to animal food crave for something stimulating. There can be no objection to adding one or two savory ingredients to the salad. Some finely chopped nuts. Um, she says grated cheese or sour cream or mayonnaise or eggs. And lemon juice and olive oil. In some cases, a finely chopped hard-boiled egg may be included in the salad. Again, I disagree because this is animal products. And in the eating DVD, I think they said it the best, that animal products are the one thing that kill us from the grave. Like, long after they're gone, they're affecting our body. Time to digest. Give this meal more time to digest than is required for raw fruits, especially if nuts, dates, raisins, or other dried fruits have been added to it. The supper should consist of sour milk or fruit. Fruit! Or a highly nourishing and digestible dish may be made of ripe bananas mashed with sour cream. The raw diet. Sufficient stress cannot be laid upon importance of the raw diet. If we could only educate the people to this fact, it would help to eradicate disease. The raw foods digest more easily than the cooked and pass through the system far more rapidly. The result is that they have no time to decompose in the alimentary canal. There is no undue fermentation and no fear of toxic poisoning. Therefore, patients are strongly advised to abstain from every form of cooked food during the full period of treatment. Thus far, the course then consists of the three stages as outlined above, and if followed, the highest results are obtained. When it is difficult to convince people that they derive more nourishment from uncooked foods, we reluctantly consent to the introduction of one cooked meal a day, but do not recommend it. Fourth stage, D, the mixed diet. With this innovation, there is sometimes a recurrence of the old trouble, and the patient, sadder and wiser for the experience, is glad to go back to the raw diet. But if the disease has not been very deep-seated and the cure is complete, the following regimen is recommended. Three meals a day. One, a fruit breakfast, one kind only. Two, a cooked dinner. Three, a salad supper. For breakfast, eat plentiful of any of the juicy fruits that may be in season. Make a stricter habit of this and observe it for the rest of your life if you want to be healthy. And again, I want to remind everyone that this was a hundred years ago. So had she been living all this time, she would have reached these conclusions herself that dairy uh, was not a good thing to reintroduce into the diet um, or any animal products, including eggs. But I am so grateful that she wrote this book. The no breakfast plan. The no breakfast plan does not apply to fruit at all. It was and is a splendid rule for people who have been systematically overeating, and especially those who are in the habit of indulging in heavy dinners and late suppers. But when the supper is taken not later than 7 p.m. and consists of raw salad or fruit, the stomach of one who has been on a proper grape diet is free from acidity and accumulations. 
In such cases, the fruit breakfast is better than the fast in that it supplies the body with cleansing and building material. In such cases, the fruit, uh, yeah, I just said that. One can, moreover, do a hard morning's work on a fruit breakfast. Not a cookery book. This book on the grape cure is not a cookery book. It would, however, be incomplete without a few hints on cooking for the benefit of the reader who has followed these pages. As the cooked foods are the acid-forming foods, no one who is troubled with acidity should have them. Raw fruits and vegetables never cause acidity. On the contrary, they neutralize the acids by which the system has been poisoned. The first results of a raw diet are often very distressing on that account. The patient seems to become hyperacid, and this condition lasts until all the poisons have been worked out. Another thing to remember is that cooked foods take much longer time to digest than raw. No more food should be taken within five or six hours after the cooked meal. No strenuous work should be done, and it is especially rec uh, recommended to refrain from every form of brain work immediately following such meal. Keep the cooked and uncooked foods apart. In the process of digestion, nature always disposes of the most digestible foods first. If you've made the mistake of mixing raw foods with the cooked food, the raw will digest first while the rest of the conglomeration will ferment. The cooked meal. A dry meal, no soups, no liquids of any kind, no raw salads, no fruit, either fresh or cooked. The main foods to be steamed vegetables. Begin with one kind at a time after the grape cure. The results, if the results are good, take two or three varieties at a meal, such as oatmeal, wheatena, brown rice, potatoes, or whole wheat bread and unsalted butter. Professional Arnold Errett, originator of the mucusless diet healing system, and recognized authority on raw food uh, objects to even one starch. Yes, I agree. In a perfect world, <laughs> ideally, yes, I agree. Enjoy this meal. If you are not a vegetarian, indulge in a piece of baked, broiled, or steamed fish occasionally with a baked potato and butter. Yeah, this is just going down the wrong path, but she's trying to be accommodating. Or this meal may consist of a dish of stewed tomatoes or any of the green vegetables steamed and baked. An infinite variety of savory dishes may be made by mashing one of the green vegetables with steamed potatoes, mixing with egg, covering with breadcrumbs and pats of butter, and baking this to a rich brown in the oven. Leftovers of cauliflower, carrots, cabbage, parsnips, steamed lettuce, spinach, baked onions, etc. lend themselves especially to this form of cooking. Watch the effects of a cooked meal, and with the first sign of discomfort, return to the raw diet. Let's see. I think we're going to stop here for today. Oh, no, we're going to finish this chapter. The seven doctors of nature. There are seven doctors of nature. One, fasting. Two, air. Three, water. Four, sunlight. Five, six, food, seven, mind. We put mind at the end because it is the most important. Mind operates the magnetism. In order, therefore, to contact the forces of mind, we purify and build up the magnetism, and this is best done by fasting, deep breathing, water treatment, sunbathing, spinal adjustment, and exercise, the grape cure, and lots of raw fruits and vegetables. This is common sense healing or harmony. Even the grape cure, if not followed scientifically, has its limitations. Take my own case, for instance. Fasting could not save me while I continued taking cooked foods after each fast. 
The grape cure would not have permanent results in my case if I had not followed the instructions stated herein to get the best results. We live in the age of invention and discovery. When I stumbled onto the grape cure in 1925, I could give no explanation of the wonders it had performed in my body. It was, therefore, the keen satisfaction that I received the following scientific with keen satisfaction that I received the following scientific statement from Dr. La Forest Potter of New York City. Proteids are the great bodybuilders. If they contain toxins, they become body destroyers. Because most of our conventional foods, medicines, and serums are contaminated by these toxins, science has been searching for years for a non-toxic proteid, which will not disturb the colloidal integrity of the cells. The grape diet seems to be in line with this great world search. All right, this is a great place to leave off. My intention is to go ahead and uh, do another podcast tomorrow when we will pick up with chapter six of Johanna Brandt's The Grape Cure uh, from the official Air at Society edition. And this uh, was republished in 2014, but she discovered The Grape Cure in 1925. And after, I believe it was five or seven years of keeping her stomach cancer at bay or just keeping it from growing, I should say. Um, Within six weeks on the grape cure, she healed herself completely. I find this book fascinating. I'm embarrassed, a little ashamed to say that I didn't look into it sooner. I just thought it sounded hokey. Um, So I am, yeah. Very sorry that I felt that way, that I didn't keep an open mind. I should know better. And as you can see, it's not at all hokey. And she did everything she could to prove that this worked. So it's not just anecdotal, which is what I was expecting. This book delivers far, far more than what I expected. Uh, Ten times, at least, what I expected. So I hope you're enjoying it, and I continue uh, tomorrow. That's the plan, and we'll just finish the whole thing. Like I said, it is 58 pages, and then after that, there's an analysis of grapes, and there's some other interesting things at the end. Um, An addenda a tribute. So 58 pages is absolutely doable for us to read during the podcast. And like I said, I think that she would be glad that we're doing this. She wanted this information to be free to everyone. So there you go. Have a great day, guys. Thanks for tuning in. You could have done a lot of things, but you did something really helpful for yourself and everyone you know. And I thank you.